Hello there, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So we're looking at the final verses of Ephesians chapter 2 today. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 22. And in this final section of Ephesians 2, we sort of finally wrap things up and see how God brings peace and unity to this world through you and I, through the church. If you want peace and unity in this world, as I imagine you do, especially with all the division, strife, and chaos in the world right now, then this text shows us how. And just to give it away right now, it begins by living in peace and unity with other members of the family of God, which is a lot easier said than done. Okay, so uh, Ephesians 2, 18 to 22, that's what we're looking at today, and it shows us how all of this happens. That's where we're headed today, sort of to wrap up Ephesians chapter 2. Now, uh, before we look at that text, however, we're going to consider a question from a reader about why he no longer senses God at work in his life. Please check your mailbox. A new message has arrived. So here's the question from the reader that he submitted uh, last week or the week before. I'm 63 and I grew up in the church. I used to do small things in the church. I would give out tracts and talk to people. I do believe Jesus is the son of the living God and became human. I used to read my Bible all the time. But recently, I don't get any spiritual understanding when I read the Bible. The Holy Spirit does not witness to me. I cry out to God to save me and change me, but I don't get answers. Can you help me? Okay, so there's lots of things going on here. First of all, I want to point out uh, this reference to I cry out to God to save me. If you're referring to eternal life, then one of the things you need to make sure is you understand that uh, eternal life is received simply by believing in Jesus for it. Okay, so multiple, and it's not based on your feelings at all. So if you feel you're not saved or feel you don't have eternal life, that doesn't matter. Uh, If you believed in Jesus for eternal life, then God has promised you have it. Okay, so regardless of your feelings or whether you uh, sense the Holy Spirit at work in your life or whether you're getting truths and insight and understanding from Scripture, none of that matters because those are your feelings and those change from day to day. Uh, You just have to trust that uh, God has given you eternal life because Jesus promised it to you. You've believed in him, and so you have it. Okay, so that's the first thing I want to get out of the way. Now, as far as sort of the overall message or thrust of this question, what this man is experiencing, what you're experiencing if you're listening to this, it's a very common experience for all Christians throughout time. I've I've sensed this, felt this. I imagine those of you listening to this uh, podcast have felt it as well. And ancient Christian teachers even had a term for it. They called it the dark night of the soul. I think that describes the feeling, the sensation very well. It's almost like a a spiritual depression in a sense, because the way you used to feel, the way you used to sense God at work in your life, you no longer feel it. And, And it becomes alarming. It becomes distressing. It even can become depressing to you spiritually. Uh, I like the dark night of the soul as far as a, a way to describe it. But I prefer to call it, the way I usually describe it when I talk with people, is a spiritual winter. Uh, Either way, the idea is the same. Uh, And the concept here is to sort of think of your life, your life with God, as a cycle 
or a pattern. And the cycle, in, in reference to the dark night of the soul, the cycle in view is this, this daily cycle of uh, day to night to, you know, back to day again. Okay, when you're referring to the spiritual winter, it's helpful to think of the four seasons. And I, I've referred to this before in the podcast, but the four seasons of spring, summer, fall, and winter. Okay, so when you feel that God is close, that your prayers are answered, that you're being fed and sustained and nourished from Scripture, and you get up in the morning with a spring in your step because you just know God is active, the Spirit is at work in your life, right? You're having victory over temptation and sin. Well, those are the spiritual daytimes. The sun is out. Everything's bright and cheery. Uh, in reference to the four seasons, those are the, those are the seasons of, of spring and summer. Life is good. Joy is abounds, right? There's sunshine and chirping birds and gentle breezes that, that, that carry the hint of summer flowers on the air, okay? Um, the thing is, as much as we want and like and enjoy those seasons and hope that they last forever, they do not. Not in the real world and not in our spiritual life either. Day always gives way to night. And summer always gives way to fall and to winter. And in the night, everything is dark. It's hard to see. It gets cold. Sometimes it's scary. Uh, it's the same is true for fall and winter. Uh, trees and grass wither. The leaves fall. Uh, snow and ice uh, come. Everything dies. It's gloomy. It's dark. It's gray. All right. Uh, in, in the spiritual life, what this means is God is silent. Uh, it seems to be anyway. Prayers go unanswered. We pray and we pray and nothing seems to happen. The Bible seems dead. You read scripture and you just don't get anything from it. Nothing seems interesting. Nothing seems like it's jumping out at you and, and, and changing or teaching you anything. And that's sort of what this man is describing when he wrote in this question. Hey, he's in a, he's in a dark night of the soul. He's in a spiritual winter. But here's the thing. When you find yourself in this dark night of the soul, in this spiritual wasteland, in this bleak winter, what I counsel people, what has helped for me in the past, is just to have faith. Persevere through these times. Because guess what? Just as this season came upon you, it too shall pass. Winter will give way to spring. The dawn will come, and the sun will rise, and your night will turn into day. Okay, so, so just, I, I know these seasons come, but they also go. So my counsel in every situation is just to wait, be patient, have faith, trust God that he will bring you out of this. Now, the question though is, why does God do this? Why can't we just always live in the daytime? Why can't we just always li be living in a spiritual summer? Well, the reason is because, it's the same reason that we go through night and, and these cycles of night and day in the real world, or even these seasonal cycles of spring, summer, fall, and winter— and it's, it's because of, of how this world works and how life works and even how spiritual life works. The nighttime and the winter and the fall, these are the times when roots grow deep, when, when uh, things need to fall and die so that they can, seeds can be born again in the springtime. Right? If seeds never fell and died, then new trees couldn't be born. New flowers couldn't, couldn't be born either. And, or, or be, you know, be sprung from the ground either. And it's the same way in our, in our own spiritual life. During the, the nighttime, during the winter, that's when our convictions are tested, when our faith is solidified, when our roots grow deep down into the soil. It's, it's these times 
that we can uh, learn to, to practice the things we learned in the daytime, in the spring and the summer, when we prepare ourselves for the next stage of spiritual growth, for what God wants for us next. I mean, you think about it, if you were always learning new things, new truths all the time, it would get a little overwhelming. You would never have time to just sort of sit back, relax, cozy up, and practice or dwell upon or solidify the things you learned previously. Uh, but those you need to learn to sort of almost enjoy these these dark times, these winter times, because that's when God is saying, okay, look, uh, we're going to take a break now, and I just want you to practice. I just want you to learn. I just want you to solidify the things that I showed you in the summer, in the daytime. And uh, that, that's one of the reasons God brings these upon us, as a way to grow our faith, strengthen our faith, and uh, solidify uh, uh, develop in the things that we learned before. Okay, so if you're going through one of these times, as this man is who wrote in, just remember, it's a season, it's a change, it's a nighttime, and this too shall pass. Uh, but keep keep patient, keep the faith, dawn is near, spring is coming. And uh, that way you can know that this is not something, God has not abandoned you, he's not forgotten about you, he's not neglecting you. This is just a cycle, and it's normal, and it will pass and uh, the, the, the day will rise, the, the, the sun will rise in the dawn, okay? So that's uh, help answer the question. hope that was helpful for you if you're the one that wrote this in. Let's move on then to our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. As we've been talking about all the way through Ephesians chapter 2, and as you know, if you watch the news or just have a job and hang out with people, strife, division, and hostility seem to rule this world. All right, They have been present in this, and that's not new, uh, they have been present in this world since there was one, one man and one woman. You remember back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and God comes along and says, hey, what's going on? You remember what happens? Adam blames Eve, the woman you gave to me, and really... Um, he's, he's blaming God, the woman whom you gave to me, right? So here we have this strife and division right there at the beginning. And of course, it follows with their children when Cain murders Abel, right? Because God uh, wanted or liked Abel's offering more than he liked Cain's. And it's gone that way all the way throughout world history. Blame, accusation, violence, and death. They really are foundational characteristics to all of human society and human culture. Okay, I wrote about this, by the way, in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. You can read about that more there. Uh, now, the thing is, it doesn't need to be that way. God doesn't want it to be that way. God has called us to live differently in this world, and Jesus showed us how it could be done. In Ephesians 2, as we've been studying along, Paul is explaining to us how Jesus showed us the right way to live as God wants us to live in this world. Uh, Jesus showed us a different way, a better way to, to, to live in peace and unity, in love and grace and mercy and forgiveness with one another. Okay? And uh, we now finally come to sort of the last part of this chapter where Paul ties it all together and shows us how to live in peace and unity with ourselves and therefore lead the world, show the world how they too can live in peace and unity with each other. Now, the primary division that Paul has in mind as he's writing this chapter is the division, the strife between Jews and Gentiles. 
It was a big, big uh, source of contention back then in the days of Paul, and it even existed in the church as there were Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church sort of uh, getting upset at each other, causing strife and division with each other about how they lived their life as followers of Jesus, what they needed to do in regard to the Mosaic law and regarded to the surrounding uh, culture of the Roman culture that they were in. Okay, um, and so it was it was a big source of strife. Now the thing is, is depending on how you look at this division that existed between Jews and Gentiles, it really is applicable to today, regardless of what type of strife or division you're thinking of. Okay, as we all know, there's a major political division and strife in our world today. And guess what? There was uh, this Jew and the, this Jewish and Gentile division that existed in the days of Paul was a political division as well. But it wasn't just political, it was racial, okay? Different races. We think of racism and all the division and strife that exists in our society today. Uh, it was religious, of course. They had different religious backgrounds. There's lots of religious strife and division today. It was economic strife, it was cultural strife. Okay, all of that exists today, and all of that, you take all of the different forms of strife and division today, wrap it all together in one box, and you have the strife, the division that existed between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. Okay, and so when Paul is writing to these Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2 and telling them how to live at peace and unity with each other, all of that is very applicable to us today. These verses show us that if we want to live in peace and unity, with uh, those who would normally be our enemies, then uh, here's how to do it, okay? Now, here's the key to all of this, and here's what we'll see as we go through these verses of Ephesians 2, 18-22. Rather than focus on the things that divide us, okay, we need to focus on the things that we have in common. And you hear this all the time, but it's much easier said than done. Okay, but Paul is going to po- focus here in the first part of this of these uh, verses, verses 18 and 19, really, po- focus on, uh, uh, point out to us a few things that we have in common. And if we f- can focus on these things, then that's going to be the first stage, the first step in helping us live in peace and unity with other people, even if there continue to be areas of disagreement and differences between us. We're going to see that Paul is not going to tell us that we all need to agree on everything all the time. We're not going to be clones. We're never going to be clones. We are always going to have cultural differences, political differences, racial differences, all right, all of these sorts of things that we disagree on, but we can live in peace and unity with each other despite these differences if we learn to focus on what unites us instead of what divides us. Okay, so let's just uh, begin with to see what some of these are here in verse 18. Paul writes, For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. All right, now we did talk about some of this in our previous study of Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 17, where we saw that in the, in the days of Paul, remember, there was this temple, and uh, the Gentile people and Jewish women did not have the same access to the temple as Jewish men did. There was the court of the Gentiles, then there was the court of the women, and then finally inside all the Jewish men could go. So Jewish women and all Gentiles could not get as close to the center of the temple as the Jewish men could. And this caused division and strife, enmity and uh, jealousy 
between the various groups of people. But we saw in verses 13 to 17 that Jesus broke down these dividing walls of hostility, these dividing walls of separation, so that now everyone has equal access to God. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Through him, through Jesus, we both have access, full access to the Father. What this means is there's no longer any hierarchy, right? There's no classes of people. There's no favoritism. There's no certain group of people who have a special in with God. Okay, Paul is saying everybody has equal access. Both Jews and Gentiles have access. Both men and women have access. There's no special privileged race or person or position. All right, There's no uh, privileged class. You think about this, uh, uh, it's a pretty radical concept that Paul proposes here because uh, in many religions, most people view like the the clergy, the priesthood, they have special access to God, right? The pastors, they're the ones that have God's ear, right? Um, And that's not true. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, Okay, so if you want to confess your sins, you do not need to go to a priest. (laughs) You can go straight to God and confess your sins. You don't have to go through a a pastor. Uh, You don't even have to go to a special building, such as a church or a temple. Okay, God is not any more in the church or temple than he is sitting right next to you, uh, right next to you where you're sitting right now. Okay, um, and so it's, it's similar. Hebrews four sixteen says we now can come boldly before the throne of grace, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, you have full access to God, the same as anyone else. And Paul says here that this access is granted to us by the Holy Spirit. Okay, now how does this help us today? Well, again, today we have the tendency to think that some people have special access to God. It's, it's very interesting. When I was a pastor. Uh, I found that it was very interesting that people would come to me with their special prayer request. Pastor, I need you to pray for this. And I was happy to pray for people as I still am today, but there's nothing special about your pastor's prayers uh, as, as more likely to get answered than your own prayers, right? Pastors are not closer to God than anybody else, all right? Um, when, when you have a, a prayer request, sure, you can ask other people to pray for you, but go yourself boldly before the throne of grace as well. You have just as much access to God as anyone else. Uh, God hears and answers your prayers just as much as the prayers of a pastor or a priest or somebody else. We all have equal access. Okay, and I don't care uh, what other sort of division you might have in your mind. People who attend church more often, they, they have more access. No, not necessarily. Maybe less, you know... Maybe, maybe they think that they do. People who attend church might think that they're more holy or something, but that's also not true. Different uh, political views or vaccination status, right? People who are vaccinated or unvaccinated, they don't have more access to God or less access to God. They're not more holy or less holy, anything like that. Educational degrees, oh, he has a PhD in theology. He really has access to God. No, the person who never graduated from high school has just as much access to God. Okay. Oh, he's more holy and righteous, and he's more moral. He has more access to God. Nope, not necessarily. Uh, not at all. Uh, moral ability does not make one person closer to God than someone else. Okay, we all have equal access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. There's no special class of people. And the minute you start thinking that you or someone else has special footing with God, 
more special spiritual position with God. That's the minute that you start dividing from them, separating from them, and looking down your nose at them or, or you know, look, putting them up on a pedestal. Oh, look at him. Okay, and that's not the way God wants it to be. So when it comes to living in unity with one another, the first thing we need to do is stop thinking that certain groups of people have, have better access to God than others. Okay, nobody is first in line. We're all on equal footing. And Paul builds on this idea in verse 19. He says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Now, this word strangers uh, is a word for a short-time resident. Another translation could be a transient. Uh, or, in more vernacular language, a homeless person. <laughs> now, therefore, you are no longer homeless, is what he's saying. This word for foreigners is the word for a person who is living in another country uh, other than the one they were born in. Again, today, we would call them aliens, all right? Uh, they, they don't have any inheritance rights, any citizenship rights. They don't have any protection under the law. They have no voting rights. Okay, so uh, today we might even refer to them as illegal aliens, okay? They, they don't belong there. And so Paul is saying, therefore, you are no longer homeless and illegal aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Now, citizenship, of course, was a big deal in the Roman Empire. And we remember Paul had this whole argument or discussion with somebody in, in the book of Acts about how he has citizenship. Okay, but here Paul is saying everybody is, has citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody, but all of us who are saints have citizenship. Not everybody is a citizen of heaven, but only those who have believed in Jesus for eternal life. Okay, uh, but we're all citizens. All saints have citizenship with the king, within uh, God's kingdom. And we're all, he goes on to say, members of the household of God. So beyond just citizens, but we are royalty. We are, are, royal, uh, in, we are royal heirs of the household of God. Uh, we're, we're, I'm a prince. You're, if you're female, you're a princess in the household of God. Uh, okay, so we're, we're beyond just citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We are heirs, members of the household of God, which, of course, is even better, more powerful. Okay, so um, again, all of this helps unify us. Who are we? We're members of God's household. We're citizens. Uh, and, and We're royalty. And as soon as we start viewing other members of, of other Christians in that way, then we no longer think of them as, oh, look how different they are. Look at those weird beliefs, those weird behaviors, those weird actions they have. Instead, we start viewing each other members as fellow uh, members of God's household, uh, as equal footing, as princes and princesses in the family of God. And we're going to have disagreements and differences, of course, just like every family does. But uh, if we view them as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, then that helps change how we view them and, and, and behave towards them. And we can have friendly discussions over differences if we'd like to, respectful disagreements if we want to. But ultimately, we are all still brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that, as long as is our primary view uh, of others that we have disagreement with, then that's going to help us live in peace and unity with them, even in areas where they disagree. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing uh, that that we that is going to help us because remember, ultimately, the ultimate question here is how can we create peace and unity with the world? Okay. And so far, Paul has only been telling us how to live in peace and unity with each other, with other members of the household of God. 
But here's sort of where we get this transition here. Paul has said we're no longer foreigners or strangers and foreigners. We're no longer homeless aliens in this world. Uh, I'm sorry, in the household of God. We're no longer uh, separated from the household of God. Instead, we're citizens in the kingdom of God. In fact, we're royalty in the family of God, in the household of God. Well, guess what? As soon as we become citizens of the kingdom of God, as, we, as soon as we become members of the household of God, yes, we're no longer foreigners and strangers to the kingdom of God, but guess what? As soon as we become citizens of this other kingdom, well, that makes us foreigners and strangers in this world. And Paul talks about this elsewhere. Uh, we're no longer citizens of this world, but we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And, uh, but that means that as long as we are citizens of the kingdom of God, that means we are homeless, illegal aliens in this world. And that helps us know how to live in this world. Okay, as we go about in this world, knowing that we are citizens of heaven, that we are members of the household of God, and we see things occur in this world that are contrary to God's will, that we disagree with, that we know are against the ways and rules and, and values of the kingdom of, of heaven, then uh, we can now respond in two ways. First of all, we're not going to condemn the world. We're not going to create division and strife. Why? Because we're in a different country, and this is the way they live in this country. And it's not right. It's wrong. But guess what? We're outsiders. We are the illegal aliens. We don't have any voting rights here. This is the way they run things. This is the way they've always run things. And this is the way they apparently want to run things. It's backwards. <laughs> it's wrong. It's damaging. It's destructive. But <laughs> this is not our country. This is not our land. Okay. And so what we do is when we see them behaving in these ways, we're not going to condemn them. We're not going to create division and strife. Instead, we're going to sort of sadly just shake our heads and say, well, uh, what a strange way of doing things. It seems backward. It seems upside down. But uh, then this is a different land that I am in. And they do things differently here. Okay, so, so that's sort of the first thing that's going to help us live in this world. Uh, when we see, when it's we who are the strangers, we're the homeless, illegal aliens in a strange land, then um, all we can do is shake our head and sadly, about how they live so, 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 so badly, so destructive in their land, and uh, hope that we can show them a different way. And that's where the change begins to occur, right? How can we lead this world, show this world that the way they live is backward, upside down, dangerous, damaging, and destructive? How can we do that? Well, same way Jesus did it for us. He came and he showed us by example. Okay? Jesus came into this world as a stranger, as a foreigner, as an illegal alien, and he didn't come condemning, he didn't come destroying, he didn't come to, to knock us all over the head, but instead he showed us a better way to live. And as those of us saw, some of us saw his way, we said, wow, that way is better. I want to live that way also. 
And we follow Jesus on the path of discipleship to live that way, to live the way Jesus showed us. And as we as the church live that way before this world, they also take notice. They sit up, their eyes are open, and they say, wow, look at that. <laughs> that does seem better. That seems more loving. I want peace, and they have it. I would like to live that way also. As we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and live out amongst ourselves a life of love and peace and harmony and forgiveness and grace and mercy, then the watching world notices that and they want to live that way as well. Okay? And this is exactly how Paul closes out this chapter. He says, this is how we as the church should live before a watching world. And this is what we learn, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. This reference to the foundation of the apostles and prophets, this refers to the writings which we now find in the Bible. Uh, the apostles refers to the writings of the New Testament, which didn't fully exist in Paul's day. There was uh, the oral teachings they had, but of course the prophets they did, which refers to the writings of the Old Testament. We'll be talking about this more when we get into Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about the growth of the church. Um, but ultimately, all of this is fulfilled and found and points to the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ himself, as Paul says there in verse 20. And of course, the cornerstone is the foundational stone of a building. When a building in ancient times was being constructed, the first stone they laid and the most important stone was the cornerstone. They would spend a lot of time making sure this cornerstone was square that it was laid level, that it was prepared on proper ground, that it was laid correctly, uh, because uh, it, only if it was properly prepared and laid down would the building be square and be strong. If it had imperfections, if it was laid poorly, then the building would be flawed and weak. Okay, it's sort of like uh, if you are putting shingles on a house. I've only done this one time. And I know that that first shingle you lay down is sort of the key. It needs to be square. It needs to be straight uh, because all of the other rows of shingles that follow will either be skewed and distorted or they also will be straightened. You need to make sure you start off properly. Same with plowing a field. You need to make sure that first row is nice and straight because all the others will build off of it. Okay. Uh, Jesus is, or Paul is saying that Jesus, as the chief cornerstone, showed us how to build our life properly. And Jesus did this by following, fulfilling the teachings of the prophets, and of course, even inspiring the teachings of the apostles. Okay, so when we follow the example, the cornerstone laid by Jesus, then we too will be fulfilling the teachings of Scripture and building in this world the way God wants, a better way, a way guided by love and forgiveness that results in peace and unity. Okay, so, so, so that's, that's what Jesus is talking about here. And, and in fact, a focus on Jesus as the chief cornerstone, okay, that in itself creates peace and unity, right? It goes back to this, this thing about how we identify ourselves. There's this big thing in our culture today about how you identify, what you identify as. You know, I identify as a follower of Moses, a follower of Muhammad, a, fo a follower of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, we get divided by our political identity. Well, I identify. I'm a Democrat. I'm a conservative. Even more recently, big push to identify as vaccinated or unvaccinated. Your vaccination status. We even now have things about identify by your pronouns, by your gender. What gender are you? 
Okay, I identify as, fill in the blank. What if we stopped identifying with all the things? What if, what if we, as followers of Jesus, identified as followers of Jesus, as our first and primary identity? That's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. What's your identity? I identify as being in Christ, as a follower of Jesus. So how do you identify? I identify as a follower of Jesus. And that's unifying, isn't it? Because now, okay, we can have other things that separate us, the different differences of opinion, um, different political persuasions or vaccination status or whatever. But the key thing, the cornerstone, the central truth, the foundational idea is Jesus. And that is going to unite us and uh, inspire us towards peace and unity and love even if we have differences of opinion on some of these other things. And when we do that, verses 20 and 22, here's the grand finale here. When we do that, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, uh, there, there are two words in Greek for the word temple. The one is heteron, and it's used of the whole building and its surrounding vicinity. The temple grounds, that is not the word being used here. The word Paul uses is naos, and it is uh, pr- refers specifically to the Holy of Holies, the central place where God dwells. It was the place where only the high priest could go um, once a year. Okay, and that's the part that Paul has in view here. And remember, this was the inner sanctuary. Yeah, we had the court of the Gentiles. No Gentile would ever be able to go into the Holy of Holies. We have the court of the women. No women could ever go into the Holy of Holies. We had the court of the Jews. Guess what? Most Jewish people, men, could never even go into the Holy of Holies. Even had the priesthood. Most priests could never even go into the Holy of Holies. We only had the high priest once a year going to the Holy of Holies. Guess what? Now we all have access by the Spirit into the holy place. And in fact, when we follow Jesus' example, Jesus is building each and one of us into the Holy of Holies. That's what Paul is talking about here. We all have access. When we follow the example of Jesus by living with love, grace, and forgiveness toward each other and in front of the watching world, God forms us into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. And when we do that, we go forward into the world with with the love of Jesus. And this is how God's peace, God's love, God's holiness is formed in this world as we love and serve uh, one another and and the people of this world that we encounter day by day. You know, all of this sort of goes back to the question from the reader we discussed above. We want to see God at work in our lives. We want to feel God's presence and see the Holy Spirit at work and guiding us and teaching us and, and, and performing exciting works in us. Well, guess what? One of the things, one of the primary ways that happens is by loving and serving others in this world the way Jesus loved and served us. As we live and act like Jesus in this world, Paul says here, God forms his temple, his holiness, his his sanctuary in us, in our midst, as we live together in peace and harmony with one another. Then Jesus Christ and his kingdom is revealed to this world through us. And the people look at us and they will say, truly, God is in their midst. Truly, God is dwelling among them. And that's an exciting thing, isn't it? I think one of the great destructive things of this separation and division and, 
and 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 social distancing that we practiced these last two years is it's very difficult to live in peace and unity and harmony with one another when we can't even be with one another. It's very destructive. And sometimes I feel like if you're feeling this dark night of the soul, this this spiritual winter, uh, social distancing is a big factor of that. So find some people that you can hang out with, uh, to, to, to socialize with, and experience the presence of God in your midst with this love and peace and unity that we that, that is built in us as we live in peace with one another. Okay? Because that's going to be essential in what God is doing in our midst and in this world. Now, all of this then concludes our study of Ephesians chapter 2. Okay? I don't know if you remember way back when we finished Ephesians chapter 1. There was an issue that Paul raised at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 2 was the answer to that issue. Uh, If you go back and read the study, and I've linked to it in the manuscript section for this podcast at redeeminggod.com, Ephesians 2, 18-22. The link goes back to Ephesians 1, 20-23. I pointed out that God, this is at the the end of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes that God wants his way of life to become reality here on earth. And we all want that. Everybody, every Christian wants that. We want God to rule and reign on the earth, which would be characterized by peace and justice and truth, right? We all want that. But the problem is this world is dominated by the opposite. We don't have peace and justice and truth. We have hatred and violence and deception. We have injustice. But God wants his way of life to become reality. And how does that happen? How does that come about? Well, Ephesians 2 has been the answer. To that question, this world is dominated by violence. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There's the problem. Jesus showed us a better way. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So now we as the church can follow the example of Jesus and live this better way before amongst ourselves and before a watching world. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Okay, so God wants to solve the problems of this world. God wants his rule and reign to become reality on this earth. How does this happen? It does not happen by us Christians sitting back, twiddling our thumbs, praying, and saying, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guess what? God looks at us and says, yeah, I want my will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why aren't you doing it? God asks us for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we ask him for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The change that God wants to see happen in this world begins with you and me. The church is how Jesus accomplishes his will in this world. And so when the church, when you and I step up as the body of Christ, it's we who are the hands and feet and voice of Jesus. It's we who fill everything in every way as we take the message of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the truth of Jesus into this world. And when we do that, the power of God flows through us, and we transform this world into the way God wants it. And that is what Ephesians 2 has all been about. Yes, Jesus is the head of the world, head of the church, okay? And and as the church fills the world and transforms it into the ways of the kingdom of God, that's how God's will, God's reign spreads upon this earth. All right, that's what we have seen in Ephesians chapter 2. It's been a long answer 
to a dilemma, a problem that Paul introduced at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. God wants his will to be done on this earth. Why isn't it being done? Because we, the church, are not doing it. And that's what Ephesians 2 has been all about. So now that Paul has answered that question, responded to that dilemma, he now sort of picks back up with where he left off in Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 3 is all about how we as the church can now live in love and peace and unity with one another and therefore show the world as an answer to the world's hatred and violence and death and bloodshed. This is how we can lead the world into peace and love and unity as well. So that's where we're going to be picking up with now when we turn next time to Ephesians chapter 3. Certainly hope you join us as we continue our study of this fascinating, amazing book that not only changes our lives, but transforms the world as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time when we pick back, back, back up with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. See you then.